Friends and travelers, however you've arrived, I bid you welcome. Here at Let's Be Frank, we're about lives, and above all, living well. I don't suspect a podcast hosted by Benjamin Franklin could be about anything else. In my lifetime, I pursued the practice of moral improvement like a science, recording my successes, and yes, oftentimes reveling in my failings. It's my genuine hope, with our weekly almanac, to feed to a curious world delicious morsels of history in quick and concise installments, perfect for a nice sit in your favorite chair, a morning walk to work. At the end of each installment, I like to wrap it all up in a neat little parcel with a lesson you can apply to your own life, inspired by the events, personalities, and ideas covered in each episode. So sit back, relax, and together, let's make history. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. My beloved Junto, I would love to get to today's installment, but we have several things to address before we can settle into this week's installment. Our Junto has been incredibly busy this week, sending me poems, questions, resources, and links. In some, dear listener, my beloved Junto, we're seeing our community come together. I thought before we could begin, we could answer a question from our Junto. We also received a poem, courtesy of the author Jeff Graham. Uh, This poem we shared with the members of our Patreon. Uh, My dear friends, we're adding special content for our Patreon subscribers every day, and so if you are interested, tears begin at just $5 a month. Now, on to the question. Miss Merritt Majeski, a long-standing member of our Junto, wrote to me this week. They said, Dr. Franklin, I've enjoyed your two most recent episodes of the podcast. I'm so glad it's back. Me as well, madam. I was reading The Chief, Now in This City, by Colin Calloway, a very good book, and a particular line about Benjamin Franklin struck me. Benjamin Franklin famously affected the clothes of an artisan, but actually wore different styles of clothing at different times and places, for different occasions and purposes. This was in a chapter about how indigenous people recognized the importance of dress when visiting cities and how the manner of dress was a performative gesture. I wonder if you know more about the statement about Benjamin Franklin. On a related note, I'm intrigued by your relationship with indigenous peoples. Well, it is true that I often adopted in my earlier times a certain degree of flair in dressing as an artisan, uh, wearing a leather tradesman apron and fighting a, a certain degree of virtue and honor in that mechanical quality. But my dear friend Mr. Thomas Jefferson will famously say, a man cannot wear the same suit at forty that he wore at fourteen. Clothes make the man. And more than that, Lord Blackwell says, a gentleman can do as he pleases as long as he does so with style. In the course of my life, I often had an outward-facing persona. This is true of us all, do we not? For our various vocations, our careers, there is a certain dress we must adopt, and then in times of ease we wear something, well, much more to our own general aesthetics. 
And so in my early life, as I wished to be a philosopher tradesman, that is how I put myself out to the world. In the courts of France, I adopted a fur cap, and I became the famous frontier philosopher. Clothes are simply a mechanism whereby we demonstrate our status. I think you will find the same amongst the First Nations of the American continent, whose clothing, like our own, each had different statements of status, of occupation, of symbol. Speaking of indigenous peoples, there will be an episode later this season about the great law of peace, where I hope to explore more about the cultures that predated European settlement unto this place and still actively call this land home. I hope this answer was simultaneously succinct and successful. I would love to go into more detail, but in truth, we have to get to today's installment. For purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Ben Franklin's life, knit together to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme. Today's installment is the first installment in a multi-episode series that will carry us all the way through Season 2 of Let's Be Frank, culminating in the 250th anniversary of an act of protest, vandalism, and rebellion that fanned the flames of revolution and transformed our constitutional differences with the mother country from something political to something revolutionary. In my time, we simply called it the destruction of the tea— In your time, you know it by another name. The Boston Tea Party. Speaking of your time, I've been doing a little bit of research into 2023 to better acquaint myself with my listeners in this time. In 2023, you've adopted a curious turn of phrase for sharing news, particularly of a personal nature. Spilling tea. This is a marvelous bit of slang as it's something I pride myself on making a career of doing. And given the approaching anniversary brewing on the horizon, Spilling Tea is the perfect title for the stimulating episodes exploring the events leading up to this anniversary. That was two puns about tea in one paragraph, the first of many, I can assure you, dear listener. So, brew a cup of your favorite oolong, bohi, or chamomile, sit back and relax, and let's begin the story that will carry us to that fateful night in December of 1773. Travel with me, dear listener, to March of 1765. The French and Indian War had come to a victorious conclusion several years prior, In an endeavor to cultivate alliances and keep the peace with Indian nations, both allied and against, His Majesty King George III issued a proclamation restricting settlement of the American colonies west of the Allegheny Mountains, increasing tensions throughout the colonies as Englishmen continued to view the perceived infinity of the American West as not only their birthright, but their guarantee of status, wealth, and prosperity. While called the French and Indian War on this side of the Atlantic, the Seven Years' War could arguably be conceived as the first global contest of arms, stretching not only to North America, but also to the furthest eastern bounds of the British Empire. While England would ultimately prevail victorious, they would do so at great monetary expense. By January of 1763, Great Britain's national debt had climbed to 122 million pounds with an interest of £4.4 million per annum, with British subjects already being taxed at high rates domestically. Parliament searched for an alternative to free themselves from the pathway to financial ruin. Enter Prime Minister George Grenville. 
Grenville found a solution across the pond, rationalizing that, since the debt from the French and Indian War was incurred defending the American colonies, it should be the American colonies that paid. His solution was the Stamp Act. Taxes in the American colonies were not new. What set the Stamp Act apart was that it was a direct tax on items ranging from documents, papers, playing cards that circumvented the provincial governments that had, up to that point, always levied taxes at the request of Parliament. Now, here's the crux of where it gets interesting, dear listener. Did the Parliament of Great Britain have the authority to tax the American colonies? That becomes not a matter of economy, but rather a matter of constitutionality. And for that, we'll briefly set aside the story to talk about the English Constitution, said by Blackstone to be the greatest constitution ever designed, burdened with a people terribly ignorant of it, the British people. The British Constitution was not one single document, but rather was a series of opinions, precedents, ideas, thoughts, documents, encompassing Magna Carta, the Act of Toleration, and whatever precedents might be set in regards to taxation. If something was unconstitutional, it was not because it was not allowed, it was because it simply had never been done. So what was the process up to that point for the Parliament levying taxes for the colonies? Well, from there, if the colonies were to ever be taxed by the British Empire, it would come from the provincial governments of the colonies. These governments were elected by the people at large, so it became taxation with representation. How the Stamp Act was suddenly different was that it circumvented that process and allowed the Parliament of Great Britain, members not elected by the colonists at large, to create taxes for individuals who did not elect them. Taxation without representation. It was not solely about taxes, but rather the precedent that it set. If the Parliament of Great Britain could tax the colonies directly, what other laws could they administer to a people who had no voice in their government? And so, naturally, when you strike someone in their pocketbooks, they will rally, they will rail, and they will protest. The next several primary sources are American colonists, one a Pennsylvanian, one a Virginian, and one very well known to you, speaking out against the Stamp Act, both in pamphlets as well as within the halls of Parliament. The first excerpt comes from John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, eventual signer of the Declaration of Independence. Friends and countrymen, the critical time is now come when you are reduced to the necessity of forming a resolution upon a point of the most alarming importance that can engage the attention of your posterity. We must decide whether Pennsylvanians from henceforward shall be free men or slaves. So vast is the consequence, so extensive is the influence of the measure you shall at present pursue. We have seen the day on which an act of Parliament imposing stamp duties on the British colonies in America was appointed to take effect, and we have seen the inhabitants of these colonies with an unexampled unanimity compelling the stamp officers throughout the provinces to resign their employments. 
The virtuous indignation with which they have thus acted was inspired by the generous love of liberty and guided by a present sense of loyalty to the best of kings and of duty to the mother country. The resignation of the officers was judged the most effectual and the most decent method of preventing the execution of a statute that strikes the axe into the root of the tree that lays the hitherto flourishing branches of American freedom with all its precious fruits low in the dust. What further steps you can now take without injury to this sacred right demands your maturest deliberation. If you comply with the act by using stamped papers, you fix, you rivet perpetual chains upon your unhappy country. You unnecessarily, voluntarily establish the detestable precedent which those who have forged your fetters ardently wish for, to varnish the future exercise of this new claimed authority. You may judge the use that will be made of it by the eagerness with which the pack of ministerial tools, i.e., officials in the king's cabinet, have hunted for precedents to palliate the horrors of this attack upon American freedom. The Stamp Act, therefore, is to be regarded only as an experiment of your disposition. If you quietly bend your necks to that yoke, you prove yourself ready to receive any bondage to which your lords and masters shall please to subject you. Some persons perhaps may fondly hope it will be easy to obtain a repeal of the Stamp Act after it is put in execution, as if the execution of it is avoided. But be not deceived. The late ministry, previous British cabinet, publicly declared that it was intended to establish the power of Great Britain to tax the colonies. Can we imagine, then, that when so great a point is carried, that we have tamely submitted that any other ministry will venture to propose, or that the Parliament will consent to pass, an act to renounce this advantage? No! Power is a tenacious nature. What it seizes, it will retain." Rouse yourselves, therefore, my dear countrymen. Think, oh, think of the endless miseries you must entail upon yourselves and your country by touching the pestilential cargoes that have been sent to you. Destruction lurks within them. To perceive them as death is worse than death. It is slavery. For these reasons, and many more, it appears to me the wisest and safest course for you is to proceed in all business as usual, without taking the least notice of the Stamp Act. If you behave in this spirited manner, you may be assured that every colony on the continent will follow the example of a province so justly celebrated for its liberty. Your conduct will convince Great Britain that the Stamp Act will never be carried into execution but by force of arms, and this one moment's reflection must demonstrate that she will never attempt." Eloquent words from Mr. John Dickinson, an encouragement for non-importation, for a non-partaking of taxed goods, as well as hinting at the harassment of stamp collectors. We saw this throughout the North American colonies. Friends turned bitter enemies, heroes of the French and Indian Wars, made martyrs to the Ministry of Great Britain, and chased out of town for endeavoring to collect taxes. We began to see gathered protest, but it's important to note these protests that were taking place were done as Englishmen, as great lovers of their country and haters of the present structure. Our right to protest came not from an idea of American exceptionality, but rather as the familiarity of English liberty. We protested because we were 
British. We fought England because it was the most English thing we could do at the time. The next excerpt comes from Richard Bland of Virginia. Great is the power of Parliament, but great as it is, it cannot constitutionally deprive the people of their natural rights. Nor, in virtue of the same principle, can it deprive them of their civil rights, which are founded in compact without their own consent. Hold, dear listener, do you remember season one talking about social contract theory, natural rights, civic rights? This is exactly what Richard Bland is talking about. Go back and revisit Chasing Independence if you wish for a refresher on what this exactly means. He continues, If they are deprived of their civil rights... If great and manifest oppressions are imposed upon them by the state on which they are dependent, their remedy is to lay their complaints at the foot of the throne, and to suffer patiently, rather than disturb the public peace, which nothing but a denial of justice can excuse them in breaking. But if this justice should be denied, if the most humble and dutiful representations should be rejected, nay, not even deemed to be received, what is to be done? To such a question, Thucydides would make the Corinthians reply that if a decent and condescending behavior is shown on the part of the colonies, it would be base in the mother state to press too far on such moderation. And he would make the Corinthians answer that every colony whilst used in a proper manner ought to pay honor and regard to its mother state, but when treated with injury and violence is become an alien. They were not sent out to be the slaves, but to be the equals of those that remain behind. Do not think I do not see the inherent hypocrisy labeled in a great many of this language. Individuals claiming they will not be made slaves to Great Britain, while simultaneously sipping tea served by individuals enslaved. This rhetoric would even be questioned by contemporaries of their own time but it demonstrates the great fear and anxiety perpetuating amongst the American colonies at this time, that this Stamp Act was not only something that risked financial ruin, but also a loss of sovereignty, a loss of authority, a loss of choice. And even in the midst of denying others choice, that great fear was enough to excite horror amongst the entirety of a continent. Now, where was your favorite founding father in all of this? Well, it might surprise you to know that I was in England. In fact, I was somewhat suspected by my contemporaries on this side of the Atlantic, suspected for being sympathetic to the Stamp Act, a defender of parliamentary authority, and indeed that suspicion over the next decade would almost be enough to serve as proof. But all the same... In February of 1766, I was brought before the House of Commons to give testimony relating to the possible repeal of the Stamp Act. The following is from that testimony. The question represents a member of Parliament. The answer, myself. Question. Dr. Franklin, was it an opinion in America before 1763 that the Parliament had no right to lay taxes and duties there? Answer. I never heard any objection to the right of laying duties to regulate commerce, but a right to lay internal taxes was never supposed to be in Parliament, as we are not represented there. Question. On what do you found your opinion that the people in America made any such distinction? Answer. 
I know that whenever the subject has occurred in conversation where I have been present, it has appeared to be the opinion of everyone that we could not be taxed in a parliament where we were not represented, but the payment of duties laid by Act of Parliament as regulations of commerce that was never disputed. Question. You say the colonies have always submitted to external taxes and object to the right of Parliament only in laying internal taxes. Now, can you show that there is any kind of difference between the two taxes to the colony on which they may be laid? Answer. I think the difference is very great. An external tax is a duty laid on commodities imported. That duty is added to the first cost and other charges on the commodity. And when it is offered to sale, make a part of the price. If the people do not like it at the price, they refuse it. They are not obliged to pay it, but an internal tax is forced from the people without their consent, if not laid by their own representatives. The Stamp Act says we shall have no commerce, make no exchange of property with each other, neither purchase nor grant, nor recover debts. We shall neither marry nor make our wills unless we pay such and such sums." and thus it is intended to extort our money from us, or ruin us by the consequences of refusing to pay it. I thought this was very well argued, dear listener, for after all, that is what the Stamp Act was, not a simple tax upon sundry things, but a small tax upon every possible legal action we could make in our lives. It threatened to cost certain provinces in its first year £30,000, and for certain provinces who were already fairly independent from Great Britain, provinces, say, like Massachusetts Bay Colony, well, the tensions grew considerably more. Question. Considering the resolutions of Parliament as to the right, do you think if the Stamp Act is repealed that the North Americans will be satisfied? Answer. I believe they will. Question. Can anything less than a military force carry the Stamp Act into execution? Answer. I do not see how a military force can be applied to that purpose. Question. Why may it not? Answer. Suppose a military force is sent into America. They will find nobody in arms. What are they then to do? They cannot force a man to take stamps who chooses to do without them. They will not find a rebellion but they may indeed make one. Question. If the act is not repealed, what do you think will be the consequences? Answer. A total loss of respect and affection the people of America bear to this country, and of all the commerce that depends on that respect and affection. That will not find a rebellion. They may indeed make one. I think that a fine encapsulation of spilling tea, part one, the Stamp Act would indeed be repealed. It would be replaced by the Declaratory Act, saying the Parliament of Great Britain could make laws for the colonies in all cases whatsoever. Yet what followed was the Townsend Revenue Acts, duties which, according to the deposition that we just shared, was always in the purview of Parliament to lay down. Now further frustrations would be carried when armed soldiers would be sent to the colonies to enforce a great many of these policies. Great Britain was gradually more and more turning towards violence. The kettle was placed upon the fire, and, my beloved Junto, revolution was brewing. Now what lesson can we derive from today's installment? Oh, there are several, I suppose. Don't make decisions for others without asking them. Always look towards consent. All things set a precedent, so make sure you set a good one. But above all, 
I think the lesson which truly can take from today is that when we see injustice, when we see something that could risk something far more terrible down the way, it is our obligation with the wildest and most eloquent words that we can muster to speak out against it, to defend not only ourselves and our countrymen, but to hold up and defend the ideas, relationships, and people that we value most of all. That's all for today's installment. With that, we had more hours in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. Resource materials and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal section at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. You can follow us on Facebook at Let's Be Frank and Instagram at Be Franklin Live. And finally, dear listener, spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listeners, our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well, and always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends.